Uh, yeah, I'm all right. Share to a page. Share to our page. Okay, it's loading. There we go. Are there two uh, L's in your name, Dara? Two L's. Yep, two L's. Two R's, two L's. Let's see, I'm reading the guidelines here, Maleko. Oh, perfect. If, if you are within six feet, I'll just keep it up when you have that question. If you're within six feet for at least 15 minutes, you do not necessarily need a test unless you are a vulnerable individual or your doctor or state or public health officials recommend it. So, Department of Health or your doctor can overrule that. All right, uh, uh, stand by, guys. We're going to go live. All right, and it looks like we are streaming now. Good Wednesday afternoon, everybody. It is August 26th. Uh, just after one o'clock in the afternoon here. Welcome to the Maleko and Flash podcast. Uh, I'm Maleko. Flash, are you there? Flash is joining us via audio today. Uh, for now, yes. Yes, I am. Hello. <laughs> uh, thanks for, for chiming in and joining us today. We've got a, a, a special update for us. We're bringing back our favorite ER doc, Dr. Dara O'Carroll, to give us an update on coronavirus in Hawaii. Uh, obviously, we're in the middle of a large surge in cases here across the state. A shutdown coming tomorrow for the island of Oahu. Hints of a shutdown possibly coming to outer islands because of uh, a concern of cases rising there as well. We're going to talk about all of that. Plus, we're going to get the latest update with what's really happening at hospitals uh, with, a, with a, a doctor, of course, who's on the front lines every single day. So please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dara O'Carroll. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. It's great to see you again. Uh, I, you know, it's, I'm always impressed that you have time to talk to us because I imagine that uh, hospitals must be very busy right now. Uh, yes, yeah, no, uh, they are busy. I think there was a, a news article. Uh, somebody took a release, uh, took a photo of our uh, EMS uh, sort of dashboard where we have who's open and who's not. Each, each hospital says uh, the ERs are available to take ambulance runs, available to take patients, and uh, or who are not, and uh, there was a photo that was released, I believe, Monday night, where it had, you know, seven of our Oahu hospitals all closed, um, which is not completely out of the ordinary. We see that in the height of flu season, um, but this is different in that uh, Queens is, Queens being our tertiary care center, where a lot of our subspecialty care goes, where you don't get to, uh, you know, the specific neurosurgeons, trauma surgeons, they're so full that they can take, you know, um, new really critical care patients because they're so full of COVID patients. That's really dangerous for people, not only in Oahu, but uh, I've worked on uh, all islands except for Maui and Hawaii Island, and routinely, including Molokai and Hawaii, uh, I've worked on those two as well, uh, where you routinely do have to transfer patients to Queens Hospital where uh, they need that some specialty care because not all the specialties are on our neighbor islands. So it's detrimental to the health of our state that we're this full. And I think we're seeing, um, you know, the Healthcare Association of Hawaii ask our federal government for, and the federal government is now here with the surge testing protocol, 
and we're asking for more nurses because we do have the physical capacity, the physical space for beds, uh, but we do not have the staff at the moment. Some staff are either going down sick or we just don't have enough. So there's an a, a adequate number of beds, not an adequate number of staff, and we're in the middle of uh, a major surge here, so much so that the federal government has come to Hawaii and uh, the Surgeon General is now here helping to direct uh, our policies here across the state. Do you think it took a visit from the U.S. Surgeon General before the governor and the mayor took it seriously enough to shut down the island of Oahu? No, I wasn't involved in those discussions and I would hope not. Um, you know, there's been calls by uh, myself and Dr. Miskovich and several other physicians for a long time to do a little bit more. And the previous uh, uh, emergency proclamation orders here in, in Honolulu were a little uh, curious to me, I would say, in that sense. And that this virus. There's other words up. you could use. Flash, what, what other word could we use besides curious there? Uh, <laughs> confusing, <laughs> irritating, annoying, um, doesn't make sense. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a lot of ways you could have described that. Curious is is the nice the nice way to do it. He's, Before he's we go, a doctor, he wants to be PC. Sure, of course. Before we go any further, uh, because this is not necessarily a PC podcast, uh, let's uh, stop for a second. Let's just talk about what we're drinking today. Uh, Flash, you're driving, so I don't think you're drinking. Uh, but I actually have myself a, a Woodford. <laughs> Speak Reserve, for yourself. <laughs> a a bourbon and Coke. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Dara, you're not, are you not working tonight, are you? Are you I'm, I'm not working tonight. I'm not working tonight, and I had a little uh, skin cancer operation. If you guys can see that. So uh, I am on water because I don't want any, uh, anything to interrupt the healing of it. Um, did you, did you just I, call that a little skin cancer operation? Like dismiss uh, that? Like it wasn't nothing? Uh, it was a cancer called uh, basal cell skin cancer. Uh, being, it's just the, the dangers of being Irish and growing up in Hawaii. Um, but uh, it wasn't the really, really bad type of melanoma where it can spread. But uh, my face is still a little bit swollen. It's just still a little bit sore. But, but I can't be in the ERs right now just to, I can't put on a mask well. I can't put on goggles well. I just want to keep it clean. So, so you're, you're, on, you're on medical leave from the hospital because of that? Is uh, I timed it with, I had some leave, uh, planned at this time and so I scheduled the surgery to happen right as I had this time off. Uh, wow. Dr. O'Carroll, I'm going to let you in on a little secret about uh, drinking and being on medication. Uh, do it. It's way more fun. Uh, which medication? <laughs> which one are you talking about? Uh, well, whatever. Whatever medication you're on right now because you can't drink. No, drink. That's, that's all the more reason to drink. Uh, I see. I'll, I'll, I'll put that in my notes right here and, and come back to it. <laughs> I, I would get a second opinion, Dr. O'Carroll. I would, <laughs> I would not accept medical advice from Flash in any way. Sure. I will look into it, though. Thank you, Flash. <laughs> get, I'll get right on that. All right, so let, let's get back to basics here. So the last time we spoke, it was, it was a long time ago. I, I, I don't even know the, the number of months, but it's been several months since sure. we March spoke. March or April, yeah. Um, I want to say it was like five or six months. Uh, but that long ago, we were concerned when we were seeing barely triple digits. I think it was uh, less than 100 people. Like We were like, oh, my gosh, 34 people had uh, diagnosed with coronavirus. We were in a state of panic then, worried about it. Everyone was mm -hmm. concerned. Everyone seemed to get it when the first shutdown happened uh, mm -hmm. back in March. And that's when uh, we wound up going back down to zero cases. We thought we'd beaten this thing. What happened, in your opinion? How is it we went from zero cases every day to now seeing more than 200 several days running? Great. Uh, I'm going to start with the good news, if that's okay. In that, uh, we are now learning how to much better treat this virus in the sense that we're not uh, intubating everybody right away because you know I've had several patients come in with a, this, uh, an oxygen saturation which is a level of oxygen uh, in your blood. Normally a healthy person has an oxygen saturation above 96 percent. Uh, you know I've saw several patients in the 20s which I don't ever prior to this virus thought was compatible with actual life but this person was alive uh, thankfully did well. 
um, and saw many patients around that as well, 30, 40%, uh, who I would have prior to this virus immediately without a question put them on a ventilator. But because we knew, started to have learned more, wait, use some other, um, other methods of you know, uh, positive pressure ventilation, meaning just pushing oxygen into them in a different way with a mask or nasal cannula. So the mortality rate is going down. So that's the good news from when we last talked. We have some other treatments that we can talk about later. Uh, but you know, there, I think there's three main categories of where Hawaii let this slip. And um, number one is that there has been a lot of talk about contact tracing. I think it's a really good thing to point out that yes, it is really, really important. Where uh, back in May, we did not need the amount of contact tracers that we did now. So we had the, you know, as you mentioned, zero cases, sometimes three, 10 to 20 contact tracers full-time employed would have been more than enough to cover that. But what happened was there was no easy way to onboard new contact tracers. And in combination with our economy opening and the mixing of people, and um, because this virus is so transmissible, I've never worked around a virus that I actually have to wear goggles because it can infect every mucous member, including your eyes. So that's how transmissible this thing is. Um, so the lack of easily being able to onboard contact tracers is one. Uh, two, there was a, a, and all of these are being currently fixed and uh, moving forward, thankfully. Uh, the second issue was that we didn't have enough places for people to adequately isolate who lived in large family houses, uh, or the, and also the adequate public messaging to encourage them to isolate as well. And so I think this should be on the news every single day is that, you know, 4% of our population is the Pacific Islander group, including Marshallese, Micronese, uh, Micronesian, and Palauans. And, but they represent at least a third or possibly more of our infections throughout the state, which is just a travesty. I mean, I'm seeing families where I'm having to admit multiple generations of the family because they're just so sick. And now, uh, once again, they, say that again. So you said a third of the patients that are uh, infected with coronavirus that you see in the hospital are of Pacific Islander descent, even though they represent about 4% of the population. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, roughly around 30%. So I just brought, estimated about a third. So about 30%. And that's, that should be making the news every single day. Like it's just a travesty and a tragic. And so it's really decimating of these communities. Um, and they also- Is it a biological uh, reason? I mean, there could be some societal reasons there. there there's been talk about the economic disparities. Um, is, is the virus targeting uh, certain, uh, certain types of racial backgrounds more than others? There's two reasons, uh, probably three. I'll start with the first one is that, as you mentioned, societal reasons. They're usually the Kofa nations, uh, you know, are here uh, because America bombed uh, the Southern Pacific from the 50s and 60s. And so now we've allowed them to, to, to be here be here and obtain free medical care and work without a visa, they typically are of the lower socioeconomic status and have lower access to high quality medical care and have higher rates of obesity, diabetes, uh, hypertension, coronary artery disease, or, di uh, or uh, on dialysis, kidney failure, all these comorbidities or diseases that stack the odds against you in COVID-19. So they have a higher rate of those they also have more proportion of the, uh, you know, uh, the uh, essential workers who are out there and who can't stop working. If they stop working, they can't afford to pay the rent, and so they do have to keep working. And then, lastly, uh, they live in very large multi-generational homes, nine persons in like one apartment sometimes. And so, when they do go home, they can't adequately isolate. And so that brings me to my second reason of why this virus has blossomed quickly is that they weren't people aren't able to adequately isolate. Thankfully, the Department of Health now is, uh, you know, we have some hotels that have been brought online where we can bring the, uh, patients who can't isolate. And the, the phone number, if anybody's out there who wants to know, is the CARES line, 832-1000. Yeah, 832-1000. If you can't, if you feel like you're sick and you can't be home, uh, that's a great number to, to get into these uh, you know, hotels that'll keep an eye on you, but also allow you to isolate. And then lastly, I feel like the public messaging has been atrocious here in Hawaii. There should be things every single day on the radio. I know that you, Maleko, you guys at the news have been really, really good at covering this, but there needs to be PSAs 
every commercial break. There needs to be radio spots every single day. We're starting to see them now, but what are we, five or six months into this? What should the messaging be? What, what, what are we missing in the message? The message should be that this is a really, really dangerous virus. You should have the, do the three W's, wear a mask, uh, wash your hands, and watch your distance, and really kind of possibly talk to people and uh, who've had this virus as well, which is portray, look, there's the main group of people outside, if you take ethnicity out of, of uh, this virus, the main age group are the 20 to 40 year olds who are contracting simply because they've been careless about where they've been moving around. And being hanging out in, in large groups and hanging out with people uh, in too high of a frequency. So, so that should have started a long time ago. And we're starting to see those public messaging now, but it, you know, that's what's kind of, all three of those things have got us into hot water. I, uh, I, I'm just curious. Um, I know for a fact, uh, the Department of Health for one has been spending an obscene amount of money with iHeartRadio and messaging since uh, late March. Um, I would say, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I, I kind of am in that, at this point, everyone knows to wear a mask, socially distance and wash your hands. But now people are purposefully and consciously not doing it for whatever reason. I think as a whole, we all know what we should be doing, but some people just aren't buying the message. Fair point, fair point. But as well, I, what I would say to them is, you know, I've, I've been accused of, you know, I've been on several podcasts and radios and Instagram lives. And I see well, we were the first. <laughs> you were the first. You were the first. <laughs> and, um, and some of them have been saying, oh, you know, he's just part of the hoax or this is all a hoax. Look, I am not a hoax. I'm not some uh, part of some deep state. I grew up on the east side of Oahu. This is a community I really care about. I am Sometimes scared to death when I'm at work and I have to intubate people who are coughing up virus everywhere. I'm scared for my nurses. I'm not a hoax. I'm not making this stuff up. That's exactly a what a deep state operative would say, though. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, what's the Illuminati password? Where's your decoder ring? <laughs> uh, you know, I think if I was to uh, uh, drink while taking these medications, I might figure it out. But, uh, I'm gonna <laughs> Actually, it's it's, uh, it's it's the QAnon now that are the ones that, that we got to worry about. That, that's that's yeah, the trending that? conspiracy group at the moment. Not the Illuminati, Flash. Keep up. Get your references right. No, no, no. I, uh, yeah, no, I didn't know that that's how you pronounce that. Say that again. The QAnon? Huh. I think that's how you I was pronounce definitely, it. Right? Definitely I was pronouncing that wrong. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> like the, the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code era. The yes. The new one. <laughs> yes. I love the, Dan Brown. Well, let's talk uh, about uh, hospital capacity then. You mentioned earlier that, um, that we had the capacity, we just didn't have the staff. Um, we keep looking at this number. The LG posts these, these slides with uh, hospital capacity, a number of ICU beds in use. This morning, um, we had a tip into the newsroom that some of the EMS uh, response teams were being rerouted because of hospital capacity. And... Uh, and I, I just, it's unverified information. We didn't report it as a fact, but it's just something that I'd heard. And I'm asking you as an insider, is that true? Are we at a point now where we're seeing reroutes? Well, I haven't worked in the last uh, three days due to the operation I had. Um, but over the weekend, yes, we were on reroute. Uh, um, reroute being our hospital or ER is so full that it's a danger to take on another patient, either for that patient or for our nursing staff, where we don't have enough people to adequately care for that patient. And this but that's not because of the number of beds, because if, if we look just at the slides, we were seeing 50% capacity or less. So uh, is that number not an accurate representation of the actual capacity at hospitals, or is it just, or is that an overall picture and some specific hospitals were at capacity. Now that or slide capacity, was... Is it capacity being capacity based on the staffing, not the number of beds? Uh, that would be a question you'd have to ask whoever made that slide. I guess it was Lieutenant uh, Governor Josh Green, correct? And so I do not know where he's getting those numbers from, and I'm not privy well, to I think they're numbers. being posted on the Department of Health website. It's a uh, hospital capacity. Um, we're seeing this number every day. It gets reported, uh, percentage of hospital yeah. beds in use, percentage of hospital beds available. Um, 
I don't, I don't, I can't break it down anymore than that. I don't know the facts beyond sure. that. Uh, but if you're in a reroute status, you're saying the hospital can't take any more patients because it would be dangerous, whether that's staffing or bed capacity. What happens when a patient mm. is sick, sick enough to be in an ambulance on their way to a hospital and they get rerouted? What's that process like? And what does that do for the, uh, for the, the treatment of the patient, for the life expectancy of the patient at that point? What can we expect to be the result of that? So this isn't completely out of the normal for the hospitals here in Oahu. Our, our EMS system is routinely stretched in the sense of uh, sometimes in the peak of flu season, we do see this frequently, usually every season, at least a couple of times, you know, you could be working uh, a busy Friday night shift where there's a lot of trauma that shows up in Queens and then they have to close down and then Know, all the hospitals in the metropolitan Honolulu area then get rerouted to the Stroud or Kini, vice versa, Polymomi here as well with Queens uh, uh, West Hospital and that system. So this isn't completely out of the routine, but for this many hospitals, including Kaiser, uh, back on Monday, that is definitely something that's uh, uh, not routine as well. Uh, so what happens is that we go on something called round robin, where uh, a person Obviously, if they're immediately so sick that they need, absolutely, they need to see a physician like right away, it's, it's do or die. They go to the nearest medical center possible. It's, it's not, not a question. But if everybody is on reroute and the patient is stable enough, they will take a longer route to say, say if somebody's coming from like East Oahu, they will go from, they will bypass Queens and Straub and come to the or vice versa, depending on who's close. So sometimes it can be a more of a circuitous route for that patient. Uh, and, uh, you know, it puts a lot of, a lot more stress on all the hospitals throughout our system when our, you know, our tertiary care center Queens hospital is, uh, isn't able to take the, the big traumas or, uh, not saying that they can't now, but isn't able to take, you know, the really sick patients that need some specialty care. And well, right um, now we're seeing a surge in the number of patients that need treatment because we're at 200, 250 cases every single day. This is the concern that we were talking about back in March, am I right? Correct, yeah, so if you think 10 to 12% of those diagnosed are gonna eventually need hospital care, and when these people go into the hospital, they don't just go in for a day or two, like appendicitis or you know, a little bit of pneumonia. You know, they're in the hospital for sometimes weeks, sometimes months, uh, they need long-term care. So that's what's really, um, you know, I don't wanna say clogging of the hospital, because that humanizes it but we're getting so packed that uh, these patients are staying with us for a long time and we need really really close monitoring and so it's something that we you know originally saw in Italy and New York um, and to think that it wasn't possible here in Hawaii I would say it, not saying that everybody thinks that way but you shouldn't have thought that this is not possible we're all humans we're all the same species and if we did the things that allow this virus uh, to propagate, which we did, uh, it was going to happen. So now we're here. What do you uh, What do you say to the people? I just had a conversation earlier today about this, and, and I've been seeing it a lot lately. Is like uh, we have so much more data now than we used to on the numbers, on number of people dying, on who gets it. Um, a, a lot of my friends that aren't wanting to wear masks or are just over the lockdown are just saying. It's just like the flu. Let's just let everybody get it and, and call it a day. Um, and it's it's I, I, I it's like I still hear that it's just like the flu. You don't die from the flu. You need new um, friends. What that's, would you say to that? That's ridiculous. Who, who's still saying this, Flash? I want their usernames immediately. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blast them right now. I, I I have lots of people that are saying that in my personal life, but you also see it, you know, whether it's on social media or in news articles or, you know, um, talking heads um, on TV, that, that's, a, that's still a prevailing uh, story based on mortality rates um, and that sort of thing. And of course, anecdotal evidence of, oh, well, my friend got it and it was like super minor and a couple of days later they were back to normal. Sure, yeah, no, um, what we know, if you wanna go strictly by the numbers at first, the numbers are that this is probably about, so uh, two to three times as transmissible as flu, meaning you know, if Maleko was to get this, uh, he would average, uh, on average, transfer it to about three other people. Seasonal influenza is only about 1.3 to 1.6, so it's much, much lower. And then also the mortality rate of seasonal influenza is about 0.13%. Okay, so that's really low. Uh, 
this mortality rate we originally thought was going to be around 1% to 2%. And now that we're being able to treat this better and we're seeing better numbers, it's going to be around half a percent or 0.6%. So that's four to five times more deadly than seasonal influenza, plus two to three times more transmissible. I've never seen people that have come in with this low of oxygen saturation. I've never seen that in my life. And I've been practicing medicine for 10 years now. I've never seen it at all. Uh, the only uh, thing that looks similar, similar to this was back in the 80s when people were showing up, young uh, homosexual males uh, showing up with massive pneumonia. We had no idea why. That's the only, that's the only thing that's similar, but they weren't showing up in nearly similar numbers that we are now. And just look at it, we've already been heavily restricted. Our, our society has been heavily restricted here in Hawaii, and all of a sudden our hospitals are full just by uh, you know, a couple of weeks of this. Like That's insane to me. And then also, just because you're going to get a mild case doesn't predispose you to. There's been a lot of people that have come in, young people, 30, 40 years old. I'm not saying people that I've taken care of, but definitely on the mainland, where they got this virus. And it, one of the main things it does is causes this terrible coagulation or clotting cascade. And then young people coming in with strokes, you know, and that's detrimental for the rest of their lives. And the young Cody, the bartender out in, uh, in NFL, he, uh, he's going to be on oxygen for the rest of his life. Like the things that he used to be able to do, go out surfing, hiking, whatever, like he can't do that anymore. And so you could get this. You could, we don't know exactly how our immune system is going to respond to this. You could have kidney damage. You could have heart damage. You could never be the same again from this virus. And it's not something to think lightly. Chances are, if you're younger, you're going to do better but it's not zero. And I don't think that's something to play around with. And it's not something that we should play around with, especially with our high-risk kapuna and family members. Well, we've, heard, we've, we've had these conversations before. It's, just, it's a shame that we have to repeat these conversations. At this point, it's like, if you still don't know, go watch our old podcast. We said all this stuff back in March. Mm -hmm. uh, what's new today, though, is the treatments. Um, there are a couple of treatments that were talked about this week. One was uh, using uh, plasma as a treatment, something that we've actually been doing in Hawaii as part of a test program for several months now. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, I'm going to break it down to, uh, if, um, if it makes sense, to break it down into like maybe a, a three different phases that the virus sort of goes through. The first phase is we call it the viral phase, and that's when the virus is replicating. Usually don't display symptoms until day, on average day five. So that first week of the uh -huh. viral phase, you may feel a little malaise, a little kind of low energy, a little cough, a little fever, but overall you're not having any severe symptoms like chest pain or shortness of breath. Usually in that second week, sometime in that second week, you've got uh, what we call the uh, cytokine storm phase. And that's when uh, the virus is actually triggering this massive inflammatory cascade. The viral loads actually go down somewhat, pretty, pretty significantly. And sometimes you're, un you're unable to detect the virus that late, that late in, the, in the viral phase. Or in the, in the cytokine, cytokine uh, uh, storm phase. And that's when you get all this inflammation in the lungs. Uh, that's when people who really, really need to get hospital care, usually around day seven to day 10, they end up showing to the hospital. Uh, and then the last phase in the last week or possibly longer is, is a hypercoagulable state, uh, phase. And that's really when this virus causes this massive inflammation cascade, as well as this coagulation of clotting cascade where you get these not only big clots to the lungs, causing something like pulmonary emboli or strokes, or even clotting off a big artery to the heart or to the leg, where you need to get your leg amputated. That uh, that uh, actor, uh, Broadway actor, that's what happened to him. Um, so that's he died the anyway. Stage. He died anyway because he was probably having clots everywhere. We're getting these things called microfrombi or microclots that you're finding little clots in the liver and the kidneys, all over the place, and even you know. Uh, this, this virus can even go to the brain. It's neurotropic. It can go into neurons. It causes one inflammation of the brain called encephalitis, or even the lining of the brain called meningitis. So those three phases. Um, in the first phase, we've got something called uh, uh, remdesivir, and that usually it's an antiviral. It's IV. Uh, it has a weak efficacy, but a, definitely a positive efficacy where it can decrease if you're sick enough to end up in the hospital it can decrease your amount of stay from about 14 days to 11 days was the biggest randomized control trial that studied it. So when people come and are admitted to the hospital and they uh, are sick enough to be on oxygen, they usually put them on a visitor. 
The second thing, and probably the most efficacious, that really combats that middle phase of the virus, the uh, cytokine storm, is something called dexamethasone. And prior to this virus, dexamethasone is a, is a potent anti-inflammatory, and it's something that I would use for somebody who had like, really bad asthma. Uh, Maleco, you might have been on it sometime as a kid. It's just like sometimes you can give it as a shot, you can give it orally, and it's not something you should take reg on a regular basis, and definitely not something you should take without the observation of the, of the physician. And it's not a testosterone type of steroid; it's just an anti-inflammatory type of steroid. Is it the prednisone? Um, it's prednisone. If we run out of dexamethasone, we can also use prednisone. So same sort of mechanism, exactly. Dexamethasone, we give six milligrams per day, either oral or usually IV if there's someone in the hospital. It's shown to be not uh, efficacious in people with mild symptoms. Because people with mild symptoms didn't enter this cytokine storm phase. So you need to be able to, to, to you need to be sick enough to be in the hospital requiring oxygen to really use dexamethasone. Then lastly, when we do admit people to the hospital, they sh they're likely going to be with us for a while and they'll be entering into what we call that hypercoagulable phase, that last phase. Um, and so we put them on really, really high dose antithrombotics, like a medication like heparin or lovinox. And so that's to prevent them from getting those ischemic legs where there's a clot going to the leg or a stroke or even heart attacks. We're seeing increased rates of heart attacks or, of those sort of nature. So those are the three things that we know for sure work. Uh, I was actually listening to some of the newer data uh, and reading about the newer data on convalescent plasma. And we don't have a, a very convincing randomized, meaning you know, patient gets option A, patient gets option B, and we study how that goes moving forward. We don't have really good data on convalescent plasma. The problem with convalescent plasma, so what is plasma? Plasma is the liquid part of your blood where you can donate blood they take out those red blood cells so it looks kind of like a gold kind of serum kind of color and it has in it the antibodies from somebody who was priorly sick so theoretically those antibodies can be transferred to you and help you combat that virus and that usually and like jump starts the process right i mean it, that, that's yeah. the the biological process of fighting off a virus uh it, is this the same principle as, as vaccines follow um, not all, uh, in a way, yes, you got you to make, it's basically, this is giving you a vaccine without your immune system actually producing the antibodies, if that makes sense. Um, so the, what also is in the convalescent plasma, and if, if, as I mentioned before, the viral load actually decreases as you, uh, as you get onto this, this, uh, this virus as it uh, goes through its course. So anything that blocks the viral replication is bene more beneficial early on. So we're thinking that if you get convalescent plasma, it's only really beneficial if you're still early on in the disease. It's also very expensive. It has to be refrigerated. And then also, plasma has these coagulation factors that we know are causing a huge amount of proportion of disease uh, in, in this virus. And so you're giving not only the antibodies, but you're also giving something that's probably not so good, which is making you more coagulable, which is making you more prone to form these spots. And so there's probably a mixed messaging that we're seeing from convalescent plasma. And what I think is going to take the place of convalescent plasma is monoclonal antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies are basically engineered antibodies without all that clotting stuff that you can give to people that'll convey protection for like frontline medical workers, for Puna, for people who are high risk. And if you get that IV infusion, it's all IV, it could probably, and this monoclonal antibodies, it could probably last six to 12 weeks, give or take. And your, your body will naturally kind of degrade those antibodies as the system. So convalescent plasma is something that still has an asterisk to me. We're still investigating it, but those other three medications, uh, remdesivir, dexamethasone, and the anticoagulants, absolutely. There's some been, been some investigation of a medication called uh, tocilizumab, which is... Uh, Basically, it, it combats that inflammatory cascade. There's still only weak evidence with that. We are still investigating that one as well. And one thing up in the line is the oral form of remdesivir. Remdesivir is only given IV. So anything given IV has a whole host of transport issues, refrigeration issues, etc. So uh, there's another rem, uh, it starts with an F, and it took me a long time to get remdesivir under my tongue. I'm not going to try this one. Uh, <laughs> but there's an oral form of remdesivir coming up in high. But at that point, 
really those monoclonal antibodies are going to be a bridge to vaccination. What about uh, hydrochloroquine? It won't go away. Out the window. Do not give that to anybody. So there's, there's something called in medicine called equipoise. And equipoise being uh, I've got option A to give to somebody. I've got option B. I don't know which one works best. Uh, let's go ahead. Or they both work F, uh, the same way. They are equal in treatment efficacy. I can give you both. We have lost equipoise when it comes to hydro hydroxychloroquine. There's been so many, all the randomized controlled trials, and you've got to be careful when you're looking at a study. Uh, there's not every study is created equal. But all of our randomized controlled trials when it comes to hydroxychloroquine have so, shown no benefit and potential harm, meaning they, they actually, hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, which a lot of people gave as well, um, actually causes heart rhythms. It causes uh, your ability for your heart to actually go into a fatal arrhythmia and you could die from this. So there's an increased mortality rate in, our, in the VA study. Why this came back was there was a study that came out of the Henry Ford system, uh, I think early August or maybe late July, where they studied, hey, we've got three different groups of patients. We're going to give no hydroxychloroquine. We're going to give hydroxychloroquine an option B. And in option C, we're going to give hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin. And uh, it was not a randomized controlled trial. It basically looked back. It was a retrospective, meaning they looked back and saw what, you know, doctors were like, hey, look, this virus is so new. We're going to try different things. And so when you parsed out the groups A, B, and C, in order for, the, for you to look at these groups and say everything was equal, you needed to have equal age. You needed to have equal rates of comorbidities. You needed to have uh, equal rates of care as well. And the two things that, uh, that were against that the people in option A who got no hydroxychloroquine, they got more dexamethasone, like prednisone, molecule that, that we give for the anti-inflammatory, we know dexamethasone works. And they're also a lot older, significantly older. And we know that older folks don't do as well in this time. So automatically that writes that, that study completely off. But that's where, Flash, to answer your question, sorry, it's long-winded. That's where that research came and then quickly I know it's confusing for the public but not every study is created equally and not every physician looks critically at the data and you need to look critically at are my groups equal and in that case of all right so uh, we're what I'm hearing is that uh, we're still learning so much about this the treatments are coming and going and it sounds like the treatments are coming and going faster than the media can keep up with it, which isn't surprising. Um, hydroxychloroquine still, a, a, some, I heard it in the news as, as recently as last week, but it sounds like that's on the way out. Um, the plasma, of course, the complications from that, as you talked about with blood clotting uh, already being a problem with coronavirus, uh, could be a problem as you introduce plasma into the bloodstream. Right now, though, with all of the experimental treatments that are happening, with all of the approved treatments that are, that are being used in patients, is this extending the life expectancy for these patients? Is it helping patients recover quicker? Um, and is it making it a better prospect for me if I were to catch coronavirus today and have to go into the hospital tomorrow? My chances better today than they were in March. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Say, um, you know, I, I saw a couple of patients who were desperately ill, had inflammation all over their lungs, I would have uh, intubated them straight away if it was back in March. But because we know so much more, you know, we gave them the three things that I mentioned, and they walked out of the hospital in a week, a week and a half and never had to get intubated. So if we didn't know what we know now, that would not have been the case before. And so so the, death, the death toll could have been even higher, except for what we've been learning these last few months. Oh yeah, initially, um, I believe in, uh, in New York, there was one hospital system that if you got intubated, you had an 80% chance of perishing. And so we, we do have, I wouldn't call them cures in any sense, and I wouldn't say that this is a reason to just be nonchalant, but we do have ways that we can combat this virus now that we didn't have before. Yeah. Um, boys, I'm gonna have to jump off. Maleko, you're gonna have to wrap it up for me. Dr. O'Carroll, thank you so much. <laughs> Look at Flash putting in it a half sweet. day on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. I'm so sorry that today is so crazy for me. Anyway, uh, one final question before I go, though. Um, 
um, not to throw a particular um, system under the bus, so I won't name names, but I've had two nurses at one hospital that don't know each other confirm this same story to me, which is they lack staffing because nurses are refusing to show up for shifts or whatever. People in the hospital are refusing to show up for, for shifts or calling out sick. Meanwhile, the president and CEO of that same hospital, this is locally, says uh, staffing is not an issue. Everything's all good. Um, um, what's what's really going on there behind the scenes? Well, you know, uh, the nurses are putting themselves at the highest risk. And the, the nurses that are actually uh, our healthcare providers that are getting the sickest and the highest numbers are our nursing staff. I couldn't comment on what uh, system you're referring to. I, I'm not aware of it. Um, and I'm not aware of anybody in the system I work in as well that were, uh, you know, who are intentionally calling out sick. Um, but I do know in my specific group or just the ER physician group nationally, people retired early. People are calling out. People are not even, you know, who were going to retire are like, all right, I'm retiring now. So I know that it is the case. We may be seeing that with our nursing staff. And I couldn't comment on specifics because I'm not aware of any specifics. But I don't want to say who, who I don't want to say what group it is specifically. I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. But yeah. um, I was just wondering if you had heard rumblings about that. Uh, I haven't specifically known. Okay. All right. I gotta go, guys. Maleko, I, I trust. I trust you. I have faith in you. This Land is great, it, buddy. Bring so, it home. You're fired. <laughs> So on the next episode of the Dara and Maleko podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Take care. Hello, right, doctor. Well, Dr. O'Carroll, uh, let's get back to maybe uh, specifically here in Hawaii, what we're facing right now. Uh, we're on the verge of an island-wide shutdown on Oahu. There's been significant community spread reported. And now we're looking at possible community spread infections growing on outer islands, uh, something that wasn't immediately a concern uh, a week ago. But suddenly in the last few days, we're hearing that uh, those cases may be, uh, may be growing faster than anticipated. Are you aware of, uh, I know you work in some of the hospitals on Outer Islands too. Uh, what's the situation like on the Outer Islands outside of Oahu? Sure, I have worked on, uh, you know, on uh, neighbor islands, but I have, I'm not currently working on. Um, but I do know, and I've seen the cases, to, I think it was either yesterday or today, where Hawaii Island had 23 uh, cases. And uh, our neighbor islands are not, do not have the medical capacity to sustain, you know, a, a, tr a community transmission. So that is worrisome for, for our, our health of our islands as a whole. And um, you know, Kauai probably has uh, nine ICU beds somewhere around there. I can't be, uh, I don't know the specific number. And uh, Hawaii Island probably has somewhere around there as well. And so they can't afford to to get a large number of cases. Even ten sick patients is really going to overwhelm any especially uh, Maui County as well. So we've got to really be careful in our neighbor islands. And I'm really thankful that there was the Inter-Island Quarantine Institute a couple of weeks ago. That was a very smart move by the neighbor island bears. So uh, what we're looking at then, because the outer islands have such a smaller hospital capacity, I mean, really the only option they would have would be to fly them to Oahu. And if we're in the middle of dealing with our own uh, hospital capacity issues, uh, sure. at some point, where do we run out of options? And what happens to us here in Hawaii if all of our hospitals, hypothetically, if across the island chain, all of our hospitals reach capacity? Are there other options for us? So the options are, I know um, Tripler Army Medical Center is, typically does not take civilian patients, but if worse comes to worse, I know that they have agreed to take uh, an overflow of patients. Uh, don't, uh, that's what I heard, I read earlier this morning. But then I That's also a great know, option, yeah. yeah. I also know that um, there have been discussions that I don't know is specifically the trigger point of uh, establishing an uh, alternative care site, or ACS, basically a pop-up hospital, either across the Queens or at Blaisdell or the convention center. So that Versus is definitely one of those hospital ships that they, that they send out from the military? Sure. I mean, that would be a great option, but I, I think they're all on the East Coast. Um, so what would be quicker, actually, is a pop-up hospital. And I know Haima and Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, and uh, they've been discussing this. And uh, the trigger point maybe not have has been reached yet, but we're, we're close. So I encourage everybody who's watching 
or everybody who's watching to tell all the family members that we need to do those three W's. We need to wear your mask, wash your hands, watch where you are with regards to distancing. And uh, it's really, really important because what we don't want to see is turning away, you know, a spinal cord injury that needs to go to Queens Hospital, but Queens is so full and the only specialists, real specialists are there and they can't get in. And so that's what we can't afford and we don't want to, you know, don't want to see that happen. As a doctor, as a physician, uh, you are constantly updating your knowledge. Uh, physicians go through trainings yearly. Uh, they go through annual course trainings and updates. Coronavirus is moving so fast that I, I, I wonder if there are structured training programs to keep you updated, or if you're just left to task on your own to read and digest as much information as you can so that you can make the most accurate treatment recommendations at the bedside. Sure, good question. Um, there are a lot of, I would say, loosely structured programs. Um, there is a, I'm a, being an emergency physician, there's a conglomerate of different emergency medicine educational programs out there. One of the good ones is called uh, MRAP. And basically, it's quick little bites. And they do, every once a month, they do a recap of what are the newest uh, treatments, what are the newest ways that we're, we're uh, efficacy that we're, we're moving against this virus. So once a month, that's not frequently enough. So, you know, I'm definitely a subscriber, subscriber to the New England Journal of Medicine. There's another great uh, podcast called Quiv This Week in Virology, which is actually more on the virologist side, which is where I get more of my epidemiology and the newest, latest research on the virus itself, like actual biology. Um, uh, there's the Amer American Medical Association. There's also the CDC, which I, I check regularly. So, I, you know, uh, outside of working in the hospital, I probably spend three to four hours a day uh, just making sure that I've combed everything possible. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's on every physician's uh, onus to, to make sure that this virus is, is under their belt. When we spoke in March, uh, we had a different understanding of what this virus was. It was uh, most commonly referred to as an airborne virus, something that was transmitted and uh, most received in the lungs. Now we see that uh, the doctors are wearing goggles. Uh, it could go into any one of, of the body's orifices and it could be absorbed that way. Uh, what do we know about this virus today that would have surprised you back in March? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is this, this huge uh, coagulation cascade, as, as I've mentioned a couple of times, is that we, didn't, we, we, we haven't seen this before in, in a typical virus, where we have to, even despite we're putting them on full dose full doses of these anticoagulation medicines, we're still seeing people throwing these clots everywhere. So that's one. And then two, um, there's been a reluctance from the CDC and the WHO to really admit that this is, there's a significant proportion of airborne spread, but there is, there has to be, because we're seeing spread longer than, you know, the typical way that we uh, see a flu spread is via droplets. Droplets being the little um, kind of uh, droplets that are spread while you're speaking, you're coughing, sneezing. And um, just to put it in, in perspective, uh, this virus is 0.1 microns. And, uh, to put microns in perspective, uh, your uh, hair, typical hair strand is about 50 microns long. And so it's really, really small. And because it's so small, and because we're seeing transmission go longer than six feet, it's, and those droplets that are spread by flu fall right around three to six feet. But there is a significant proportion of aerosol spread. And so we wouldn't have anticipated that back then. And we do know that transmission can occur two to three hours uh, after somebody leaves a room or is in a room. So, uh, so it, that is probably those two things are the most surprising. And then also the fact that it's, it's, this is not going away at all. You know? um, I did write uh, for Vice Magazine back in, I think it was March 1st, March 2nd, that the way this plays uh, in the globe is going to be dependent on all 195 countries' response to it. And it's been proven now that the U.S.'s response has been so piecemeal and so uh, uncoordinated that we've, the United States has become a super spreader country. And what does that mean for us here in Hawaii? That we really have to be careful about who we let into our islands because as we've seen, our healthcare capacity can easily, easily be extended. And we need to be real careful about how Hawaii moves forward. Hopefully in January, February, we get those vaccinations to come through. But until then, uh, we've got to be very careful. 
Well, let's talk about the acceptance of the vaccination coming so quickly. Uh, we've, we've already accepted the fact that we need these vaccinations to be rushed uh, in order to make this effective before it's too late. Is there a concern from you as a medical professional that these vaccines won't be ready or uh, won't have been thor thoroughly enough, won't have been enough vetting going on for these vaccines before they're widely distributed? There's no doubt that this is moving way faster than any sort of vaccination um, schedule ever before. The fastest was three to four years for Zika virus back in, I think it was 2013, 2014. And so this is to have a vaccination, uh, you know, the virus was just, you know, sequenced in January and we're gonna have a vaccination in it roughly around a year is really, really quick. And it really is apropos to call this Operation Warp Speed, which is our governmental's arm pushing this. But I think they've done a really good job at selecting which vaccine candidates that they're, they're endorsing. There's four different methods that they're using. There's the mRNA, and we won't get into it because it's really, really nitty gritty microbiology stuff, but there's four different ways that you can make the, the vaccine to confer immunity. And they, they're endorsing two candidates from each of those four ways, so eight in total. And one of those, if not multiple, need to work for there to be enough vaccine for the world. We're not just talking nationally or Hawaii. We're talking for the world to get over this virus. And the studies thus far are showing efficacy. Now, those were smaller studies, stage one uh, studies, but these stage three are really, stage three, excuse me, are really we're going to be the proof of the pudding. Are we seeing high rates of uh, side effects, uh, especially in our older group who really are going to need this? Are we going to even see that these vaccinations work in our older group? Because we know our, their immune responses as we get older aren't quite as robust. And there's, uh, you know, some, we do know of the benign coronaviruses, you can get reinfected with those in eight to 12 weeks. This virus really hasn't been around long enough in one locale for us to really know, can you get reinfected? There are some case reports of people hypothetically being reinfected. And so we don't know that yet. And so poss quite possibly, our vaccinations are gonna last a year to two years and you may need a booster. And so there's a lot of good work going forth where is it the antibodies that are really important in conveying immunity when you get a vaccination or just when you contract this virus? Or is it also the T cells, which is the two complementary side of the immune system. The T cells are less discriminatory. They're kind of think of them as like kind of brute soldiers and the antibodies are more like snipers where they'll kind of like pick the little viruses out. So you can think of it that way. Is it more important for the brute guys? Is it more important for the antibodies or is it a combination of the two? So that's what they're looking at now. So up until now, I've, I've directed this conversation by asking you some of the questions that I've thought of uh, covering this story in the news over the past several months. But I mean, I think it's more important now to just kind of open it up to you. What are we missing? What is the underlying tone or message or what are some of the stories that media has missed over the past several months or that we're completely omitting right now? Oh, that's a really good question, Maleko. Um, you know, I, I think that there has been, as you said earlier in this podcast, there has been a, a, some pandemic fatigue. You know, a lockdown that first happened back in March, everybody was very, very uh, um, followed it to the T. Everybody understood the, the consequences. They saw the bodies building up in, uh, in New York and they didn't want to be in that location. And not saying we're there now, but we're very close and we're scrutiny with that. Uh, flirting with that idea. And so the more that people uh, spread and tend to not believe that this is a virus to really, really take seriously, and the health of our communities, of yourself, of your neighbors, of your kuna, of your family, of, your, of everybody you know is at risk because our hospitals are filling up, the more dangerous you're being to everyone. And so everyone really needs to take this seriously. And you guys have been great at, at doing as much as you can at, portraying this, but possibly may, maybe getting some more in-person stories of like, hey, look, I didn't think I'd get this virus, and I did. Uh, there's a lot of, now we're unfortunately having a lot more patients who are contracting this virus. But, you know, it's just something that everyone really needs to take seriously, because this is on our doorstep now, and we can't wait to act. We need to act now. And we probably should have locked down quite sooner than this, but I'm happy that we act we're locking down now. Uh, and it's likely going to be longer than two weeks. I wish, you know, 
I wish two weeks was enough, but if we need to get to the place where we can open up our economy, if we're just going to do it two weeks, I think that's really not enough. And we'll see at the end of these two weeks, but I'm absolutely predicting that it's going to take a month for us to drop levels where, look, this, you know, so many of our small businesses are, are dying you know, day by day, even now that this, this new news for them is absolutely devastating. And we need to get the health of our economy is now tied to our public health. So we need to drive these numbers down. I think it's going to take longer than two weeks uh, so we can reopen our economy safely with the contact tracers, with isolation units, with great public messaging. And I think we can all do it as long as we commit to it. The Surgeon General announced yesterday that Hawaii would be undergoing a surge testing program. They're looking at 5,000 tests per day. Uh, in total, they're trying to reach 60,000 uh, Hawaii residents tested over the next two weeks. Um, in, in your experience with the virus, what do you think that's gonna happen? Let's assume we get all 60,000 people there. Um, what do you think the results of that are going to be for us here in Hawaii or the implications from all of those tests? Sure, I mean, there's been estimates that one in 50 people, this was a week or two weeks ago, uh, there's been estimates that one in 50 people have this virus here in Hawaii. So there's such a large percentage of people that have asymptomatic uh, infections, meaning you don't actually know you have it, or the symptoms are so tiny, you may have a little scratchy throat, a little runny nose that you don't even notice, or you only notice when you're asked. And so we're going to catch a lot more virus, that's absolutely certain. So there's been estimates that 5 to 6% to 7%, I think it's probably going to be a bit higher than that. But I really encourage if anybody wants or needs a test, the more people who get it, the better, so you know. Um, do I need a COVID19test.com register? Um, they have a list of, I think it's 12 or 13 sites, uh, mostly in Oahu, not all in Oahu, that you can go and get a test. And go get the test because um, it is part of our, our duty to not only ourselves, but everybody here that um, make sure you don't have it. And we encourage people to do that. Uh, I, I signed up for the test. I haven't had a coronavirus test yet. Um, I've been self-quarantining at home since, uh, since mid-February. Um, and so this is the first opportunity that I'll have to get tested with my limited exposure to the world. Uh, but a couple of things about this that uh, made this appealing to me. One, uh, it was easy to book an appointment. Uh, the test itself wasn't the invasive brain poking test that we've seen uh, the Q-tips. Uh, yeah, those aren't fun. <laughs> way back in there. How many of those, you've had, probably had to do a few of those yourself. Uh, I've had three, yeah, and each time they make me uh, tear up. But it's not, not intolerable, but it's, it's not a fun thing to do. So these, these tests that uh, are being done over this surge testing program are the, the narrow or the shorter Q-tip tests where they just kind of do the base of the nostril. Results in two or three days. Um, I am fairly certain that I have not been exposed, but getting tested and knowing that I am not exposed uh, is important to me and my family. Uh, so we're all going to get tested over the next couple of days. Um, if, you're, if, if you could speak directly to somebody who might be at a higher risk than I am, maybe somebody who is a little less fearful of the virus and maybe has uh, been exposed a number of times or in any one particular case, uh, what do you think the, the appeal would be for them to get this test as part of this program? Sure. Um, like you said, these tests are not the nasal pharyngeal or the brain ticklers. They're the nasal swabs, so they don't go all the way far back. Uh, so you're not going to be in any sort of incredible discomfort. They're very accurate. Uh, I heard the Surgeon General say they're above 90% sensitive. So you'll know your results and you'll know them quickly within two to three days. And think of it as a duty that you're doing to yourself. You know, we've got those core values here in Hawaii with uh, Ohana Kuleana to our communities. Think of it as something you're doing for Hawaii to reopen our economy as well. For all of you who are struggling with you know, how to pay your bills, how to keep a roof over your head, how to feed your children, this is part of our Hawaii's effort to get all of us back on our feet. And so as we lock down, as we all are, uh, get more testing, as we all isolate more, the viral loads are going to go down. The more that we stay away from each other, know that we should stay away from viral loads are going to go down and there's every step that we take is going to be closer to a, a new tomorrow where we don't have to worry as much. 
Great words to end on there. Dr. Dara O'Carroll, an emergency room physician here in Hawaii, uh, who's been battling the front lines of coronavirus since it arrived in our island state. It's been great talking with you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us in our audience today. Uh, take care with your medical recovery. And uh, when you do get back into the hospital and back on the front lines again, please take care of yourself and stay safe. Thank you, Maleko. Appreciate it. Thank you for all you're doing as well. Thank you. And you can watch this interview again at our website at malecoandflash.com. You can subscribe to our podcast and hear the audio version on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, and you can watch the replay of this on Facebook or YouTube. Coming up next week on Wednesday, we'll be back with another episode of the Maleco and Flash podcast. Until then, take care, stay safe. And uh, as Dr. Darrell Carroll would say, wash your hands, wear a mask, and watch your distance. Is that, is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah. Three W's. <laughs> Three W's. There we go. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great Wednesday. Aloha. Aloha.